Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining us. I just had the great pleasure, and I really do mean that, of talking with Will Buckingham about his new book, 64 Chance Pieces, A Book of Changes. This came out with Earnshaw Books in 2015. Now, this is a book that is both a work of fiction or a collection of works of fiction inspired by the I Ching, the Book of Changes, and it's also a book that engages scholarship in a really meaningful way, both about the changes and also a range of other kinds of scholarship. It's a really inspiring, really beautiful, um, extraordinarily fun, but also thoughtful book um, that really I can't recommend highly enough. So the shape of the book um, takes the form of 64 stories, some of which are related to each other, all of which are related in some way to the particular hexagram from the I Ching, from the Book of Changes that inspired the story. So um, I'll uh, leave off so that you can get to the interview. Um, I'm really excited about this one. Will was generous enough to read three of the stories for us, so definitely listen for that. Um, but I want to also mention this because in case you haven't heard of the book, this is a really fabulous book, not just to read. Um, it's, a, it's a great source of inspiration. It's also really a model of what can happen when scholars bring a playful approach to their research and their work and the kind of beauty and real thoughtfulness that can emerge from that. And it's also an example of a kind of work inspired by speaking to, speaking from, speaking about, speaking around and with um, a classical Chinese text that could be really, really useful to teach with. Um, So for any of you who are teaching courses, actually, that um, engage or involve um, the I Ching or Chinese classics at all, um, you definitely should take a look at this book because it could make a really fabulous addition to a syllabus that gives students um, a kind of another way of thinking about and thinking with and engaging with a text like this. Plus, it's just fabulous. Um, so definitely read it. And with that, um, I will let you um, go on to the interview. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you, as ever, for your support of the podcast. And I hope you enjoy I'm here today to talk with Will Buckingham about his new book, 64 Chance Pieces, A Book of Changes. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Will, and thanks very, very much both for writing a really, really inspiring book on many levels and also for taking time to talk with me about it today. I'm really looking forward. Uh, thank you very much, Carla. It's very good to have a chance to chat to you. Of course. So let's kind of start at the beginning. Well, what are you doing typically when you're not writing books about the aging? Um, oh, that's a good question. I teach um, creative writing here in the UK, and I also um, have a post in at Sichuan University in Chengdu. So the moment i'm geographically somewhat dispersed um so i teach and love teaching um things between creative writing literature philosophy 
Um, and I have a background in anthropology, so that sneaks in as well. Um, I also write other things, um, philosophy chiefly, and um, for children as well. So I have a fairly broad range of interests in, term, in terms of writing. Fabulous. So the book that we're talking about today, and we will talk in much more um, wonderful, fabulous detail about it, is a a kind of cycle of stories, a novel of sorts that's inspired by the I Ching, the Book of Changes. What mm-hmm. brought you to this particular text, and how did you decide to write a work of fiction about it? Um, what brought me to it, I think, was a quite appropriately a series of accidents. So, so one of the things I'm interested in the book, in sort of writing the book, was that process of chance and uncertainty and um, the accidental. So possibly, I don't know, 15 years ago, I fell into a conversation about the I Ching with somebody I knew very little about it. And back then I thought, this could be an interesting literary tool, if you like, or tool for thinking as well. Um, I was, at the time, pretty unacquainted with um, China, Chinese, with the I Ching. But I thought it could be used to um, carry out a, a little literary experiment as I was thinking of it. So I bought the book and took it home and thought, what would it be to write 64 stories, one from each hexagram of the I Ching? I didn't realise at the time it would take quite as long to do that or I would get sucked to, so deeply down into that uh, that particular black hole. But I'm, I'm very glad all that did. Um, it did take so long and it has been so absorbing. How long had you been working on the book? Um, about, I think, getting on for a decade. So my original interest, um, I'm a huge lover of uh, Metallo Calvino, mm-hmm. the Italian writer. Um, his Invisible Cities would be my desert island book, I think. Yay. And <laughs> I we, we've talked before, we, actually, yes, about we've your enthusiasm for uh, Calvino. Um, so the... Um, one of the attractions of the I Ching was um, that it played into some of those themes that Calvino's interested in, in terms of chance processes in relation to literature. So that was my initial interest. Um, but the I Ching is, a, um, is such a thoroughly absorbing, not just book, but a thoroughly absorbing world that my interests extended beyond those relatively narrow sort of forms of literary play to a much broader kind of philosophical and literary cultural engagement with the with the Ching. Right. And the engagement that you're bringing to your work um, here inspired by the Ching is not limited to just reading a translation and going from there, right? I mean, you're demonstrating in the book a really sustained and a really serious um, and playful at the same time, which is wonderful um, to see um, interest in China, in Chinese, um, in Chinese history and Chinese philosophy. What brought you to that particular um, world of inquiry? I mean, is this something that you were working on, um, a place you were traveling in, something that you were interested in prior to coming to the Yijing Project? Or is this something that grew along the way? I think both. I mean, a lot of the seeds were the seeds were there um, prior to stumbling upon the I Ching and um, having this idea of using it in this way. I'd first um, been to China, um, so te- technically been to China, uh, I think, just on to a quarter of a century ago now, when I was 18 and um, 
I crossed the border from Pakistan um, with a Chinese visa, but the border post was closed. So at the age of 18, the notion of China was um, quite strong. And I was planning at the time to go from Pakistan, where I'd been living, to Beijing and get the train home. Um, So there was that sense of having been to China, but only about 15 metres into China, and then having come back home again. Um, and that sense of something slightly unfulfilled, and a couple of stories in the book play with that. Mm-hmm. Um, later, I became engaged quite seriously in thinking um, about non-Western philosophical traditions, more specifically Buddhist traditions for a long time. Um, but again, those kind of blurred into interest in China and um, the philosophies of China. But it didn't wasn't until the Yijing book. Um, that those things became something I started engaging in seriously. Mm-hmm. And what scholars, um, I, I mean, I know we talked, um, so for listeners, this is our second go mm. <laughs> talking about this yeah. because um, speaking of chance and accident and randomness, internet connections between China and Canada don't always work the way that you might want them to. They, they, weren't, they weren't ideal, what I But I know that... Um, you actually, um, you know, you worked with or uh, cited in here and um, have talked about being interested in the work of particular scholars, um, right, of Chinese <clears throat> studies who have kind of been, um, it, it seems like formative um, for some of what's going on here. So for you, what work in Chinese studies um, has been particularly um, helpful or inspiring or engaging for you in terms of the work that you brought to the project? Okay. Um I mean, in terms of Yijing scholarship, there's a there's a huge army of um, scholars, all of whom are called Richard, um, <laughs> which I don't, I don't I really don't understand. It's a, That's one of the, the next novel. That's all of one of the, the peripheral um, mysteries of the Yijing. Um, so Richard Wilhelm, of course, for the who um, did the famous translation that then went into English, and that was the first text I got hold of. Um, but one of the scholars who I found particularly interesting was an intriguing character was Richard Rutt, who really, um, in his book, um, which is, I think, from, from Routledge, um, he read the E. Jing, the Light of the 20th Century Scholarship, as a Bronze Age text rather than as a later, uh, rather than in the light of the later philosophical glosses. And there's a Bronze Age text, the E. Jing, looks very different. It's much bloodier, much um, more unsettling in some ways, and much more earthy and folksy than the rather refined um, political, uh, sorry, uh, philosophical positions that we set out later. So Richard Rutt became, um, his translation early on became quite a quite formative on the process of the book. He's also, um, incidentally, he was um, Bishop of Leicester, where I'm currently based, Um, although we didn't cross over in Leicester, and he's he's no um, no longer with us. And he was uh, head of the um, UK Knitters Guild, I think. So he was a man of many many parts um, and spoke Cornish (laughs) and Korean. Um, But his his book, of course he's done, but his book is fascinating in the way it... um, the Jing is often treated in that slightly um, sort of soft-spoken way as a, uh, you know, a, a profound text of you know, great deep wisdom. Uh, and then suddenly, in this reading, it was um, this, this sort of spectacle of um, 
you know, Bronze Age politics and blood and war and, um, you know, what's going to happen with the crops and all these things that matter in the Bronze Age very much. And I found the the idea of those very different readings of the same text immensely um, productive in terms of generating ideas, stories and thoughts, really. Great. Now, the book has 64 chapters or 64 stories, mm-hmm. one for each hexagram. So the structure of the text, um, and this is very much in the spirit of um, Calvino and writers um, that are also working with potential literature of uh, creating a constraint that's then going to generate yes, creative yeah. possibilities, right, for storytelling. Mm-hmm. Which I think is just really super exciting and interesting to think with um, and to think about. So there's 64 chapters. Let's actually, um, to uh, kind of give listeners or start to give listeners a sense of the book, let's actually get into some of them. Now, um, these okay. chapters, um, they're each based on a hexagram, and some of them are more kind of closely tied to what's happening in the hexagram than others, right? So the connection between the hexagram and what's happening in the story um, takes uh, very uh, different forms in different stories. But let's start. Um, Can we start, would you mind reading uh, one of my very favorite stories? This is number nine, The Taming Power of the Small, and maybe kind of um, introduce it a little bit for listeners, or what's the hexagram, what's up here, and then um, can you share the story with us? Okay, so the the ninth hexagram is, this is one of the stories that's more loosely related to the hexagram. So some took the images very directly from the text. Some have a much more um, winding kind of connection with heading back to the source. But one thing that I was interested in at this, um, when I was writing this, is the notion of uh, chance and uncertainty. And maybe that... um, there's something foundational about uncertainty and chance. It's not just um, something that gets in the way of the, you know, the world running its proper course, but somehow it's generative and at root of the world is uncertainty and, and um, chance. So that was the sort of vague philosophical um, motivation behind this. And the story here in the book, um, I've got an introduction with a wildly speculative <laughs> um, discussion of um, Sanskrit um, etymology and the notion of the deva and the divine related to divination as being to do with um, the role of the dice and chance rather than that Aristotelian notion of, you know, um, the divine as being associated with the unmoved mover and everything. So what's fundamental maybe? I set out in the introduction, this very brief introduction, is perhaps chance. And maybe that's where the divine, whatever that is, or divination kind of gets its um, its, its life. So anyway, that's, um, I don't know how much sense that makes. Um, but um, the story is a very brief story about a god um, who's closer to this kind of god than the rather large lumbering gods that I associate with Aristotle and, you know, the Western tradition. Um, I had once planned actually to write a um, novel that was a collection of small gods, um, stories that's gods. Yeah. Um, And this this actually had its beginnings before the Yijing book, but it found its natural home here. 
so it's a small god. Um, and um, a small god that I met actually in the northeast of England, but that's another story. So I'll begin. Thank you. There is a small god who lives between the flower pots on the windowsill of my house. In the summer, when the petunias are in bloom, it is almost impossible to see him amid the foliage. And the coloured petals, over the foliage and the coloured petals, whilst in winter he shrinks, I think it is on account of the cold, to the size of a pea, that he is grey instead of green. Of all the gods I've known, he is one of the strangest. When the dustmen come every Monday morning, their cart rounding the brow of the hill to churn down the road, the men shouting to each other, throwing the black sacks into the back of their monstrous machine, my god whispers to himself, let there be a dust cart, and he sees that it is so. When the neighbour's cat leaps over the fence, he takes credit for having brought such a fine, sleek creature into existence, and when the cat leaps back again, he believes he has consigned the animal to nothingness. And I'm not unaware of his convictions. As I come and go through the front door to water the plants or fetch a bottle of milk from the shop, my god wonders at this new creation of his, and he asks me to bow down and make him offerings. I will be nothing without his power, he tells me. I do not believe him, but you can never be certain. So whenever I pass, I make him offerings of flowers, grains of rice, small coloured pebbles, seashells, and the occasional raisin, just in case. I love that. Thank you so much. So, um, so have you thought of, is this plan, um, that you've, uh, that you had in the past to write a book of small gods, including maybe this, um, this small God in the aging book. Do you think you'll pick that up again? Um, I am tempted. I'm definitely tempted. It's um, one of the things that's bubbling away and the kind of thing that when I speak to my agent, you can hear her audibly sigh um, because it, uh, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily um, sit comfortably on the on the bookshelves in the, you know, in the in, where, where do you go in the, book, in the bookstore for a book on small gods or for a strange non-fiction fiction hybrid based on the Yi Jing. Um, but it, it's still there, so I may well pursue it sometime. Great. Well, I hope you do. It sounds fabulous. <laughs> and, and, and that's, like I said, one of my favorite stories in the book. But I have many favorite stories in the book. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting that's happening with the structure of the book and the relationships between the hexagrams is that there's not um, just a relationship between the hexagram and your interpretation of it and what's happening in the story, but some of the stories themselves are also um, related to one another. Like, so there are stories that are kind of mirrors of one another, um, which is actually a really a kind of beautiful evocation of mm. the relationships of some of the hexagrams themselves. So I'm thinking in particular of, of stories three and four here, um, difficulty mm. at the beginning and youthful ignorance. Um, you, there are some really interesting ways that these stories are speaking to one another. Um, there's interesting stuff with Leibniz in here, um, and they really seem to mirror each other. So can you talk a little bit about three and four? Um, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, um, can you just kind of briefly talk about what, what interests you most, perhaps, about what's happening in these stories and the way that, they're, um, the way that you think of them as related to one another and, and why that's important? Okay. I mean, there is, I think the, the Leibniz story is the first one. Um, 
and Leibniz is associated with the the Jing because um, he corresponded with the Jesuits, and um, when the Jesuits, you know, sent him the um, so diagrams, Xiaoyong's diagrams um, of the hexagrams from the I Ching, Leibniz said, "Okay, this is um, this is my binary system, and therefore." This lent um, lent a great sort of deal of force to his claim that binary was some kind of universal language of thought. Interestingly, the Jesuit uh, Father Bouvet, the Jesuit who he corresponded with, um, wrote back and said, "You do need to know, though, um, you know, Gottfried, um, that you didn't invent this, and the Chinese got there first, and you can't say you can't say this is your invention." Um, so the the story that Leibniz invented binary on the basis of the I Ching is not is not true, but he saw he saw affinities um, between the two. So this is a very simple story about um, the sort of the in, uh, an instant in which um, Leibniz, prior to putting his wig on in the morning, has a moment of philosophical insight. Um, somebody pointed out to me after I wrote it that it's. Uh, not a million miles away also from um from the film the matrix um which i hadn't thought when i wrote it but uh, there is something of there is something of the matrix in there there's also a nice um it's the only story probably um this is um i don't, don't, don't know if this encourages readers or puts them off it's the only story that actually contains binary um the binary does and the binary does mean something if you if anybody's willing to crack it um i did have one reader who um who did crack it and was very pleased with himself um yeah um but i'm not going to let on so uh so it's about that sort of that momentary um that moment of insight that moment of transformation and what goes on there really um as an idea um arises you know what's that turning point the fourth story also involves a mathematician um, and um, is quite deliberately in the, the two hexagrams are transformations of each other and the fourth story is a transformation of the third story um, in a very different setting. And the relationship between the two is not something I... I fully pinned down. Um, this is storytelling, not philosophy. Um, but they do feel to be together. Um, they're attempting just to push towards some sense of um, the importance of chance, really, in terms of um, discovery, I think, and the, the arising of new ideas. And this is at the core, really, of the project with the I Ching, which is, can I use this as a machine for discovery? Eventually. Now, the relationships between the relationships that are happening um, and the transformations that are happening as a result of these relationships in the text, again, are not just about the relationship between the hexagram and the story or mm-hmm. between individual stories in the text, but also between stories in the text and other kinds of stories. So there are a number mm-hmm. of, right, like um, stories in here that are explicitly or implicitly evoking um, tales from maybe the larger cloud or the larger universe of storytelling um, in really, really beautiful ways. And we could talk about any number of examples of these, right? Um, the if, one that immediately comes to mind is story eight, um, closeness. 
just here. Um, you talk about the resemblance of this to another um, Bulgarian tale. And there's also a bear on a bicycle. Uh, do you want to talk? A there is a bear on the bicycle. There's a bear on a bicycle. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that one? And maybe um, perhaps we could use it to open up um, uh, your, your sense of the importance of or the, the interest of the ways that some of these stories speak to um, larger world of stories out there. <laughs> this was, um, this story was one of the, again, one of the early ones in the text and it, um, Initially, it caused me no end of problems because I I wrote the story um, fairly early on, and it came out of the telling of a, um, a Bulgarian joke. So back in I think two thousand and eight, I was in Bulgaria in this little guest house, and um, one of the people in the guest house told this joke about a. Um, a political leader and a bear on a bicycle and it was a it's a great it's a great joke um so i wrote the story and i was feeling happy with it and because there's 64 stories in the book this was taking longer than i, I thought it would initially take um but this was one of the ones that felt very much um sort of firmly established it felt like it belonged with the hexagram um and so on. And then at breakfast one morning, um, when I was um, at a shared house, and one of my flatmates said, "Oh, you'll love this story," and passed me a passed me a story that had been that was published in Granta, in fact, by um, Ingo Schultz, I think the uh, the writer. And I started reading it, and I thought, "My goodness." Um, this is a, this is the same story, and it was written as a as reportage, and it was beautifully written. You know, English Schultz is a great writer, um, and it was effectively the same story, but it was in a different part of Eastern Europe. Um, and um, my initial thought was, I'll have to ditch chapter eight, um, and this is a um, you know, this is this is very annoying, and um, how dare English Schultz publish a story before I um, you know get this book out. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, actually, what I'm interested in is that, that process of um, sort of transmission and transformation. And clearly both stories were drawing on some kind of common source, some kind of joke that circulated throughout, um, you know, the former Eastern Bloc, perhaps. Um, and there's something that felt so much in the spirit of, um, of what I was doing. Um, that you know, I, I thought well, this, is, this isn't a problem. Actually, this is a um, this is what the book's about. That kind of transformation. So the story stayed in, which is good because it's got a bear on the bicycle, and um, it would have been a lesser book without a bear on the bicycle. <laughs> That's absolutely. So the stories are not uh, so, and there are lots of other stories in the book um, that are also evoking um, sort of other stories and, and weaving them together with what's happening here. But it's not just other stories that are um, kind of part of this world. Some of the stories that are in the book are also inspired, and, and you're very clear about this, at least in some uh, moments of the book. They're inspired by your own travels um, and your mm -hmm. own experiences, um, and there are many like this. I'm thinking specifically of Chapter 12, Obstruction. Um, yeah. which you describe as um, evoking your own experience as a teenager. And you may have actually alluded to this um, a little bit earlier in our yes, conversation, yeah. waiting at the end of the Karakoram Highway. Um, mm -hmm. So can you, can you 
maybe talk about that process? Sort of how does, um, and I know this is a difficult question to figure out how to answer because there may not be an answer to this, but can you at least um, open up for us some of your thoughts about the process of translating an experience like that into um, a story in the book, um, perhaps in the in the context of this particular one? <laughs> I think it's... Um... It's been a very interesting process writing this book. I was um, I was lucky enough to be funded by the British Academy for part of the research. And um, so I went to China to do some research and do some travelling there. Um, also, the book draws upon sort of other um, experiences of travel elsewhere um, and at other times. But one of the things that is curious about research as a as a novelist rather than as a um as a you know, straight down the line scholar i mean actually straight down the line scholars are never as straight down the line as they pretend either i think <laughs> That's right. um That's right. but um but you have to pretend that um research follows this orderly and um almost you know, predictable process but actually so I think I'd be going and talking to philosophers and looking at you know looking at manuscripts and all those other things you do as part of research and that I was doing as part of research, but actually the the points where the research got really interesting were those little points where things diverged from what you expected and suddenly you were I found myself in a totally different you know um, context or territory. Um, and again, it's that moment of chance, uncertainty, unpredictability, un- unpredictability that's that's somehow generative. Um, so I think the and one of the things about travel, I suppose, is that it's putting you um, putting you in the way of greater uncertainty, and so that is. Um, if you keep your wits about you, I think is something that is potentially generative. I mean, even going outside of your front door, I think, um, puts you in the way of greater uncertainty and therefore multiplies the possibilities for your world. Um, so, yes, the research was, um, it's, it was quite heavily researched, but um, sometimes I felt as I was sitting on a train for 24 hours talking to some crazed diviner um, who had all these divining kit out in front of me and my Chinese at that time was you know really quite atrocious um, for five years ago um, but that was in a sense you know, totally unplannable but richer in terms of research for something like this than um, endless you know hours spent uh, in the library down in Soas, trying, you know, racking my brains over um, over this, that, and the other. So, I mean, all those things are important, but it is often, I think, that moment of uncertainty that then um, really gives rise to something new and new and exciting. Are there other particular moments like that, the the train with the diviner, right, that immediately <laughs> come to mind um, that inspired stories in the book that you'd want to share? There is one. Um, I, I, I met a quite a, an eminent uh, Hong Kong philosopher and um, uh, ended up falling into a pond. Um, uh, just me, actually. He, he didn't fall into the pond, but I did. Um, and that's um, left its mark on the book at some point. Um, also, the I 
I found myself um, pursuing through China the ghost of the, um, or the spirit, or the um, the figure of um, Fuxi, the uh, mythical um, founder, really, of Chinese culture, who um, composed, you know, the, the eight hexagrams, the sort of, the, um, sort of substructure of the I Ching. And um, I went to quite a lot of temples associated with Fuxi, and he became quite an important imaginative figure in terms of um, directing my travels in China, but also directing some of the stories. So that's a really nice segue into asking you to read another one of the stories. Um, actually, story number 49, Revolution, um, evokes Fushi explicitly. Um, would you mind maybe uh, talking a little bit about, maybe introducing that a little bit for listeners and then reading that for us as well? Okay. Um, one of the things um, I realized that I'm traveling to sort of provincial museums in China, that Fuxi has such a strong. Um, so he's this. Um, for those, I mean, those who don't know, he's this uh, sort of leaf-clad figure. You get a lot of temples to him throughout China, who um, is associated with the Bagua, the eight, the eight um, trigrams, and um, who, according to the commentaries on the I Ching, was responsible for a lot of the um, sort of very early culture. Basically, he was the the first teacher of culture um, in Chinese myth. Um, and so I started thinking about Fuxi as a kind of um, as a kind of uh, revolutionary. And this um, hexagram forty nine um, is good is revolution. So it felt like it had to be a Fuxi um, hexagram. And one of the things I'm trying to do through the book is not just use the I Ching, but to reflect back on the I Ching and that huge, vast, you know, thousands of years of cultural richness associated with it. So um, this is one of the chapters that reflects back more strongly on the I Ching itself. So I was in Tianxue, um, and um, I talk in the introduction about meeting a uh, French uh, singer of chansons um, who I met on the bus there um, and um, this is a this is a uh, story about which is actually related to some quite um, peculiar and probably slightly um, under the weather dreams I had around that time um, so yeah I think I'll just um, just launch in I'll start with the um the end of the introduction, which just says, perhaps Fuxi has a claim to being China's greatest revolutionary. And if it's protested he's a largely mythical figure, my response would be as follows. How else can one run a revolution except as a mythical being? So this is the story. I dreamed that night. After a journey along roads fringed by tall maize and sorghum, after I climbed the steps of the old temple and made obeisance in the incense-fragrant hall, occupied only by myself and a few sparrows. After I looked him in the eye and he stared back at me from the shadowed wall, I dreamed of old Fuxi. He was hairy, wild-eyed, a man of the soil, dressed in leaves and animal skins, his toes sturdy, his big hands capable, grasping at everything. It was a dream. What can I say? Without the logic of brute things, my mind constructed a slapdash simulacrum of the world. I dreamed of Fuxi, 
but he was also my boss from work. His tie, now I think of it, was made of leaves. The Freudians will say he was also my father, and perhaps they are right, but there's more than one story in the world. So there he was, leaf-clad Fushi, and he was restless and he was everywhere. He fashioned a bow and arrow, and with it he felled a deer. With the pelt of a deer he made a coat, and with the meat of the deer he made dinner, and the dinner was good. But afterwards he did not sleep. Instead he leapt up to invent writing and music and the arts of divination. The people, timid people with soft skins that bruised easily, peered from their leaf shelters, small, nervous creatures on the brink of a world in which everything would soon be different. Teach us, they said, teach us. Fuxi looked at me. This is the part of the dream I'm sure I'm remembering with precision. He looked at me as he had in the temple the day before, but with real, not painted eyes. And then he was off. He invented a robot rabbit that played the drums, and he invented the battery to ensure the rabbit could continue playing for eternity without cease. And he invented a pill to make erections last, and he invented a novel way of curing bacon, and he invented a bomb capable of destroying the entire world. And at this point, I formed a clear intention. Freudians, say what you will. I'm playing into your hands. I formed the intention to kill him. No bomb, no cured bacon, no erection pills, no robot rabbits, no divination or music or writing. But just then, I must have cried out, because my wife shook my shoulder. What? She was saying. What? I replied, my eyes now open, the shadow of the dream still upon me. You were raving about rabbits, she murmured. I was? You said something about erections. Did I? Hmm. Then I heard her sigh and her breathing slowed. And the following day she would not remember this. Then I fell asleep, just in time to see Fuxi, hairy, wild-eyed old Fuxi, disappearing away over the hill. His back was turned, his vast shoulders hunched in sadness, his large hands empty. Thank yeah. you. I, I love that one too. I love that one too. Thank you. So it wasn't just though your own experiences um, in these kinds of chance encounters um, and dreams <clears throat> that also stimulated the stories. There are also several stories that evoke some of your past experiences. Um, uh, for example, on archaeological digs, you described <clears throat> here, and there's some wonderful stories. At least one of which also involves jam tarts. Um, so archaeology <laughs> and jam tarts. I'm thinking specifically about, um, uh, for example, story 19, weeping, um, which is uh, invokes yep. the ar- archaeology, and the 27th story, nourishing, nourishing, um, which invokes yes, yep. um, archaeology and also these jam tarts. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, for example, nourishing? Um, because it also has the tarts, and, and that's important in addition <laughs> to the archaeology. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how that experience um, mm. kind of is, well, well, the relationship between that experience and what's happening here, and what you take to be perhaps most interesting about the story? Okay. So, I mean, archaeology was obviously a, became a very increasingly big theme as I was writing the book, partly because it's so important to the, the understanding of the Jing. Um, and archaeologists themselves are interesting figures. I've, m- myself, I've only done, um, spent probably a month of my life um, engaged in actually 
or archaeological digs. Um, back when I was an art student years ago, I spent um, a month in Lithuania digging um, something out of the, uh, I had no idea what it was, um, out of the ground just outside Vilnius. There was a, a long wall, which eventually after two weeks turned the corner. Um, and I was the only non-Lithuanian on the project, which was all conduct, conducted in Lithuanian. So Mr. Varnas, the archaeologist, who I think is still around and quite a well-known Lithuanian archaeologist, he would um, talk great length about what we were doing. And then I'd say, what did he say? We must dig here. And so we would dig. Um, so that was a kind of... There was a sort of experience of uh, working on archaeological digs, which um, fed into some of this. Um, but the jam tart story, I was, um, whilst researching this book, there was a very small travelling exhibition, I think possibly from the British Museum, I can't remember. But I saw it in Coventry, and um, it was a China-related exhibition. And they had some Tang Dynasty jam tarts in a case, um, which is absolutely astonishing. And they've been found, um, you know, somewhere out in the stuff desert in the west uh, and they're incredibly well preserved um and i I'm a, i love baking as well um and so I, I found myself just looking at these jam tarts and thinking what would they taste like and obviously in the glass case and you know they're extremely precious relics so you don't ask you don't you know go and ask the attendant if you can eat them um but this idea of um you know what was the jam um i became very preoccupied with what the jam was and um spent uh, at least uh, a morning um was trying to do research into um tang dynasty jams which again fed into the story um but there's something incredibly um that felt just incredibly uh direct about that the idea of tasting the past, if you like. Um, you know, what would it be like to cram one of those jam tarts in your mouth? Would the deserts, you know, of, um, you know, um, around Dun Huang, would they kind of spring up into um, into life again as sort of, you know, uh, with trees and fruits and so on and so forth? So that was, that was kind of what was going on in the story. So it's partly that experience as an archaeologist, but partly um, just encountering these extraordinary, you know, um, jam tarts that are, you know, fifteen hundred uh, years old or so. Let me say less. There's also a, a fantastic way that this story ends. So, in my copy of the book, um, there are various smiley faces in the margin. <laughs> this one. Um, so it, I'll just kind of uh, read this for listeners. Tentatively, I put the second tart in my mouth. This is on 152 and closed my eyes again. There were orchards, flower gardens, birds. I even thought I could hear the tinkling ankle bracelets of dancing girls. It's a nice Tang Dynasty reference there, right? I heard Dr. Y sigh. This job, he said. Best fucking job in the world. That's just <laughs> such a great, I mean, boom, drop the mic. You know, that's just. <laughs> um, I, so, yeah, so jam tarts, archaeology. Um, there are a lot of themes that weave through here. And there are also um, some more uh, just kind of favorite moments that um, maybe another couple that I'd just like to ask you about before mm. we kind of move to our conclusion one of so i'm a sucker for stories about body parts um and i'm a sucker for okay, yep. teeth and mustaches and there are two stories oh, in here I just... I, right i just love it so biting together story 21 um it 
involves a smile artist um, and mm-hmm. also um, kind of engages a figure that comes up um, at least a few times in the book, and this is Shenong. And when people think about Fuxi, sometimes they think about Shenong as well. Shenong is yep. another figure. Yep. Um, and so I would just love if you could tell us about um, your inspiration and kind of your thoughts about the story, story 21, about the smile artist, and then kind of the way that it forms a pair with story 22, which also features a mustache. So smiles and mustaches. Can you talk mm. about that? Okay, yes. Um, so... The, I mean, Hexagram 21 traditionally has quite a strong connection with Shenong, the sort of divine, divine farmer, spiritual farmer, if you like, um, who's again one of those ancient, very ancient mythical figures. Um, and the story here was very closely related actually to the text of the hexagram. So I, I quote it in the text, you know, biting on dried gristle, finding a metal arrow, being steadfast towards difficulty benefits, auspicious. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this story actually because it's it's the one that I've read at certain you know readings and things, and often it's just been one of the ones that has puzzled the audience more. Um, it's not necessarily not necessarily one of the crowd pleasers, um, but I think that focusing down on a specific part of the body is. I mean, it's something both of those chapters do. I've not really thought of it explicitly until now. Um, and both of the both of the hexagrams do that as well. So this it focuses very strongly on the mouth and the teeth. And the conceit of the story is there's a guy whose um, face isn't quite right, but he has the perfect mouth, and he makes this is his um, his path to a great glittering career as a mouth artist where he you know um, advertises breath mints and he advertises toothpaste and all these other things um, so they don't uh, they don't focus on his eyes which are just a bit wrong or his nose but his mouth is perfect um, it goes terribly terribly wrong somewhere somewhere out in Irian Jaya um, it, so it's the West Guinea um, the second story is I dearly wanted um, to have the um, image in the book that was um, associated with this but my publisher just said get rid of that photo of that man with the moustache nobody will know who he is Um, but it's um, which is a shame you know Um, so the second story is about Henry Welcome who was an extraordinary collector associated with the Welcome Institute in London and the Welcome um, Trust Fund huge amounts of medical research and he was one of those um sort of crazed collectors who wanted to he invented the the pill um for the medical pill um for sort of taking medicines you know in pill form and became wildly rich um american uh moved to britain and became this frenzied collector um and i have a friend here who's actually a um a china specialist um who's written very interestingly on um british perceptions of the cultural revolution um cultural revolution art so um amy barnes and written a very interesting book about that and she was um she's in the world of museum studies and she was talking one day about um henry welcome having this astonishing and fine and you know unparalleled moustache <laughs> um 
And the hexagram is about adornment and facial hair and so on and so forth. So as with the previous story with the smile artist, I sort of focused in on that notion of um, that part of the face as being um, somehow um, somehow sublime, but the rest not quite, perhaps not quite matching up. Um, so yeah, they are they are quite closely related. And I haven't made that connection with with um, sort of parts and holes before. So it's quite interesting. So we could talk easily about um, any of the other chapters, right? There, there are 64 of them. They're all super rich. They're all fabulous. But we don't, unfortunately, have another several hours to do that. I wish we could. I, I, it could. It could test the patience of listeners. <laughs> I would love that. Um, but because, um, uh, in a way, because the book is so playful and so thoughtful about structure, um, I think maybe as we move to our conclusion, maybe we can move to the end of the book. Um, so okay, on, yeah. yeah. Page uh, uh, 331 has the final hexagram. This is hexagram 64, not yet across. Um, and this is yeah. a really beautiful story about Qin Shi Huang and a fox. And I wonder, mm-hmm. would you mind read, kind of introducing and reading this for us as our okay. way to maybe kind of move to a conclusion um, as we also conclude the book. And maybe uh, if um, you have any particular thoughts about what you're particularly yeah. interested yeah. in. Yeah. So the, the book as a whole is bookended by two stories about Qin Shi Huang. Um, and the first one is him at the um, sort of apex of his power, um, seeking to consolidate that power. And um, there's the famous, um, to some extent, um, historically contested um, burying of the scholars and burning of the books, but in which Qin Shi Huang said um, that divination manuals and agriculture and medicine, I think, should be spared from the flames. So that's at the beginning of the book, and the question of why is divination so important that it, this should be one thing we allow to be permit, uh, transmitted from the past, where the philosophers you know, um, can, all, can all go off in flames. The last chapter then, um, so the last hexagram, Weiji, is not yet across. So the Yijing um, penultimate, penultimate chapter is called Already Across, Gigi. And then after that, not yet across, um, Weiji. So there's the that lovely openness where you expect a book to end at the end, um, but... Um, the eating itself looks like it's ending at the end of the 63rd hexagram and then it says oh no but we haven't ended um so I, i've always loved that and the last hexagram is kind of fascinates me because of that that built-in openness of the eating so i was thinking about uh, Huang, and i was thinking um my doctoral research on was on emmanuel levinas and he speaks very interestingly about um death and that process of um, always actually being being alive, always being not yet across within uh, one's life um, and that we don't um, experience our own death but it's experienced by others, which is a Epicurean um, theme. So I've got two images in this story um, of Qin Shi Huang um, failing to die, although he's very... And obviously, he's the great emperor who sought immortality, and he is 
in a sense, it's a kind of immortality because he's failing to die. And there's a story in parallel about a fox, which comes from the hexagram, fording a stream. So there's quite a rich um, philosophical brew that this came out of. But I'll read the story. Thank you. Tin lay upon the couch, his breath uneven. The palace halls were silent, except for the sound of the physician going about his business and the soft, fretful pacing of Lisa. Xu Fu and his ships had long since disappeared to Peng Lai. Of late, the emperor could barely swallow the daily mercury tablets he took as he dreamed of immortality. Not long before, somewhere in the empire, a meteorite fell from the sky inscribed with the words that predicted the emperor's coming decease. And then, that morning in the palace of Sha Far from Xianyang, as he staggered from his couch, the emperor saw a fox facing him in the palace courtyard, her eyes steady, her body motionless. He hissed at her to send her away, but she continued to stare. The emperor turned his eyes away first and hobbled back to his couch. It was then that he knew the end was approaching. It was mid-morning. The physician was fretting over his useless potions, Li Su was pacing about and looking out into the courtyard. The emperor's breath was coming and going. It was shallow and broken. For the first time, the emperor thought, if only I could die. He remembered the Duke of Zhou, how he had quelled the Guifang. He thought of all the conquests of the past and all the conquests of the future. He raised his head a fraction. If only I could die, he said. Neither Li Su nor the physician replied. It was as if the emperor had not spoken at all. His head slumped back onto the couch. Those were to be his final words. His forehead was wet with sweat. He felt his chest rising and falling, and as long as his breath came and went, he was not dead but alive. Not far away, the fox slipped out of the courtyard. She ran down the hill to the stream, swelled by the recent rains. She entered the river and started to paddle, her head filled with unknowable fox thoughts. In the distance, the emperor could hear the surge of the waters in spate. Not yet across, he grasped the life that was slipping away. When he felt life slipping between his fingers, he grasped instead at the death that was still out of reach. As he lay there caught between the two, past and future, life and death... The fox swam, struggling against the current. Qin Shi Huang thought of mercury pills. He thought of Peng Lai. He thought of the tomb that awaited, filled with warriors baked from earth. His breath came and went. The fox struggled against the current. She was not yet across, the shore in sight and nose length before her, but she was tiring with the effort of it. She kicked and fought against the water, straining towards the bank. Briefly, she felt the touch of sand beneath her paws. The emperor's breath rasped, harsh and uneven. His eyelids flickered, now open, now closed. The water surged around the fox. She could get no purchase on the sandy bank. The river was too high, the tide too strong. Her eyes started to dim, her muscles slackened. The emperor gasped. The fox let out a small cry and gave herself over to the waters. It was then that the Prime Minister placed a cloth over the Emperor's mouth and he saw that the breath was gone. The Prime Minister looked at the physician. The physician trembled. 
He had witnessed the death of an emperor. He too would not see the sunset. And somewhere not far away, the corpse of a fox, lifeless now, was swept downstream to where the waters met with the Yellow River. And the Yellow River swelled and surged, turning ever slower and broader across the plains until it flooded out to the vastness of an unending sea. Wow. Thank you so much, Will. Um, I also thank you. just really love that story. Um, so powerful. And thank you so much for sharing it with us and for reading it as a kind of a way to bring us also to a closing. That's also a kind of opening. So there is um, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of stuff we didn't talk about. Obviously, a, a conversation like this can't possibly be comprehensive, right, in um, talking about all of the wonderful things in the book. But given that, is there anything in particular as we come to a close uh, that you'd like to mention for listeners that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Um, one thing I think that's sort of guiding thought, really, um, throughout the book, um, which I think is probably key to it um is that the more more i sort of explored this the more i began to see so the idea of divination we often think of it as um something that's to do with diminishing uncertainty so generating a greater certainty about what's going to happen you know we all want to know what's going to happen um but um there's an interesting tradition which i in chinese thought which i draw upon whilst writing the book which sees the Jing and divination more broadly as more to do with um, cultivating a response to uncertainty. Um, so I begin the book actually with the lovely um, Yang Wanli um, quote that um, the I Ching, the Book of Changes, um, plunges the people of the people of the world into doubts and makes them think. So the idea that uncertainty could be could be productive is something I found very much was the case actually through writing this book. And it's frames now how I see the Jing as a kind of um, tool for generating productive uncertainty rather than certainty. So that's one thing I that's the frames a lot of the thoughts in the book. And now that the book is out, what are you currently inspired by? What are you working on now? Um, a number of things. I'm, I'm very interested by the Wenxin Jialong, the carving of dragons on the tree mind by Liu Xie, um, which is a fascinating text about the writing process. Um, so I'm, I'm exploring that and just come back actually from a, a lovely philosophy conference in Australia. Um, on Greek and Greek and Chinese wisdom, where I was talking about that, I'm not sure where that's going. Um, there are, of course, the gods, um, the small gods, which I may well get back to, um, and there's there's all kinds of other things bubbling away with, particularly some of the Chinese material. That I'm currently it's a bit too early to talk about a the form they're going to take. I think, but um, there's so much more to explore. You know, that I'm I'm keen to continue. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of that work to talk with us today. It's really been such a pleasure. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.